Again, welcome to RUF. Glad to have you. If this is your first time here, especially welcome you. Um, I'm relatively new as well, so you're not alone. We're going to continue our look tonight uh, answering the question, who is I am? Uh, and we're, to answer that question, we're looking at the gospel of John, and tonight we're going to be in John chapter 3, very familiar passage Uh, You can find it, if you don't have your Bible, you can read along with us there in your handout. We're actually going to start a few verses before chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2. So if you would, read with me here, starting John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already." Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Heavenly Father, we do uh, come before you now. We come to your word and we long to hear you speak to us. 
Would you give us your spirit? Would you pour him out into our hearts? Would you give us the words of life? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every, uh, every Christmas Eve of my life, uh, there's kind of been this moment of amazement. Uh, Christmas Eves all my life have been spent at my aunt and uncle's house, uh, spending time with my dad's side of the family. Uh, and the, the moment of amazement is this. It's watching my aunt. It's watching her in the kitchen. Uh, it's watching her go from the stove to the oven to a pan to a plate to a glass to the sink to the refrigerator, all the while uh, carrying on conversation. It's every year it is amazing to watch her do this. The reason it is amazing is because my aunt has been blind since her own early 20s, nearly f- over 40 years. She's been blind. And the thing that often crosses my mind when I watch her, not necessarily just on Christmas Eve, is the thought that if you didn't know better, if you were just talking to my aunt and you were watching her as she carried out uh, things going on in her house, you would not know she was blind. I really don't, there, there's many occasions where I don't think you would know. And to this day, it's funny, I catch myself or I catch others in our family talking to her and then like trying to show her things as they're talking to her. Because it just doesn't occur. I mean, we just, it's so normal. She's so normal. It's so normal to be around her. We don't, I don't think, when I see my aunt and I talk to her and I hug her and I tell her what's going on, I don't think she can't see me. It doesn't cross my mind. And I've never asked her this, and maybe I should have called her before I said this, but I assume it's true. I think that for my aunt, the darkness has become so normal to her that it never crosses her mind. I don't think it does. At least that's how it looks uh, to the casual observer, uh, especially when, the, when she's in her comfort zone, uh, like her own kitchen. You know, we come to John chapter 3 tonight, and this is such a familiar passage. Uh, and I think that the saying can be true uh, with our, how we deal with Scripture, that familiarity can breed contempt, or maybe for us, maybe familiarity breeds apathy. We're just blind. We've blinded. We've heard this so much that we've blinded ourselves to the beauty that is contained therein. You know, um, John 3.16 has become the slogan or the cliche of Christianity. And the reason is, is because so succinctly it packs in the beauty of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you tonight to open your hearts afresh to this passage, to the thought of being born again, to the thought that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I encourage you to open your hearts to this because I think what we find, what you find in that verse, what you find in the context surrounding it is really the nuts and bolts of the gospel. This is it, okay? We see the truth claims of the gospel here wide open of who Jesus is and why he came. And I want to see three things that are written for you uh, there in your handout. I want to see the need for new birth, the need for transformation, and the need for a savior. The first one's the need for new birth. If you look there at the end of chapter 2, I think that's the perfect kind of introduction uh, into chapter 3. Um, because it's, it's a nice flow because we see that we're told that Jesus knows what is in man and actually what we're going to find in the next few chapters is now Jesus coming in contact with people or groups of people and him showing that very thing that he knows what is in them. Okay, but even more alarming to us, I don't know if you caught this, verse 24, 
is that we're, we're being told that there are people believing in Jesus. They're watching him doing signs. They're believing in him. But what is Jesus' response? We're told that he was not entrusting himself to them. People are coming to Jesus and believing in him, but he's not giving back, maybe. How could that be? How could Jesus do that? How could he retreat from those who are believing in them? And I think the first few verses of chapter 3 show us what this illustration of Nicodemus is showing us is that there is a way to be acquainted with Jesus, to interact with Jesus, to believe Jesus, to buy what he's selling, and to be completely lost. It's startling, really. Okay, one thing that came to mind as I thought about this, first, one of the first days I was here, I forget what the building's even called now, I went to get my bear card, right? Um, and I walk in, and immediately when I walk in, there's people like set up, and I can tell they're solicitors, like they're selling stuff. So I'm kind of like, okay, I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to go here to the window. And I'm trying to deal with the person at the window, but sure enough, as I'm standing there and trying to get my bear card stuff straightened out, the people start talking to me. And they're trying to sell me, you know, you know do you have a meal plan? What bank, who are you banking with? And it's like, you know, I just closed on a house like the other day. I have a bank, okay? Um, Basically, nothing was wrong with what they were saying. But what they were selling me was completely useless. Why? Because they didn't know who I was. They thought I was a student, I'm assuming. They didn't know who I was. John's telling us at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, here with Nicodemus, that these people had no idea who Jesus was. They thought they did. They had no idea. And Nicodemus is the perfect illustration of it. How there can be one who seeks Jesus, yet one who does not know Jesus. How can that be? Well, let's, let's look at it. The, the answer here, how can someone seek Jesus, yet be blind at the same time? You see it here in Nicodemus' approach, how he comes at Jesus. The first thing we're told is that he's a Pharisee. Okay, and not only is he a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of the Jews. That's a higher class of Pharisee. He was on the, the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. Okay, later on, Jesus says that he's a teacher of Israel, even at a higher notch. So he would have been one that was well-versed in Scripture, in obeying the law, in doing God's will. This would have been one of the most well-respected men in Jerusalem, hands down. Okay. In other words, John's telling us that Nicodemus is one who had it all together. You think you have it all together? You wish you had it all together like Nicodemus did. He was it, okay? Cream of the crop. Guy you wanted to be like. Of anybody in that day who would have been qualified to enter the kingdom of God, as it was known in the Old Testament, Nicodemus was it. He'd be at the top of your list, qualified. And here he comes... He comes at Jesus, he calls Jesus a rabbi, knowing that Jesus is just some guy from the country who has not been to school. Okay, he's showing respect to Jesus. He starts to talk to Jesus. Jesus stops him dead in his tracks and says, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus step back for a minute, okay. Jesus goes right at the heart of it. What does a baby come into this life with? Nothing. Okay? 
And Jesus uses that illustration with one of the most accomplished people that he probably came in contact with during his earthly ministry and says, all of it means nothing when you come to me. He just stops him right there at the door. It means nothing. You have to see, to see my kingdom, you have to start at zero. So what we're kind of being told here is that crowds, the crowds and the people like Nicodemus, they're coming to Jesus, but they're not coming to Jesus on Jesus' terms. They're coming with their credentials. They're coming at Jesus and saying, you've got a good thing going on here. I want to buy in. Let me, let, me, let me buy into what you're selling here. And Jesus stops that dead in his tracks and he says, either you're going to come to me as a helpless nothing or you're not going to come to me. Don't come to me with your credentials. Until you come without them, you do not get me. So I want you to see what this, is, what, Jesus, what, what this does. It begs the question, why are you coming to Jesus? Or better yet, what is it that you're coming to Jesus with? Because I think in a way, we are all like Nicodemus. We think to ourselves, okay, Jesus knows me. He knows what I'm going through. I've got to clean this up a little bit before I'm going to come. I've got to get it all together. I've got to tidy up this corner. I've got to tidy up this corner. I've got to get it together before I come to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you must be born again. You want to know what you come to Jesus with? Think about the moments that you feel the guiltiest or the moments that you feel the most shame. In that next moment, how long does it take before you can pray about that thing? If it takes a while, I would suggest to you that you are coming to Jesus with something. Something that you think you need to do before you can even talk to him. Christianity, the gospel, Jesus, is not an add-on to our life. It's something brand new. We need new birth, Jesus tells us. There's something about you that has to be changed. There's something about you that needs to start all over. There's something about you that you cannot bring to the table. You need to be made brand new. Nicodemus was blinded by his own goodness. Jesus didn't come to do business with people. He didn't come to give us a leg up in life. He came to make us brand new. We need new birth, and we need it. Why? The second thing here is because we need transformation. We need transformation. Jesus is telling us that we can't even see the kingdom until we've been transformed. Okay, and Jesus expands here with Nicodemus what he's saying. Verse 5, you look at verse 5. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, again, completely doesn't understand Uh, Jesus implies in verse 10 that since he is a teacher of Israel, he should know what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, you should know full well what I'm saying because it's not new. And most likely you take the combination of water and spirit and we were most likely pointed back to Ezekiel 36 where uh, the prophet says, that God says to the prophet this. Listen to this. He tells his people, Israel, in exile, 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit is not new to the Old Testament. This idea of inward transformation is not new Jesus and God, God's telling his people in Ezekiel, Jesus is telling Nicodemus and us this, there is something about you, there is something inside of you that needs to be changed. You have to be completely washed, completely made new. That is offensive. Just admit that that offends you a little bit. That you've got to come and then you've got to start all over. It would have offended Nicodemus. Jesus says there's something inside of you that needs purification and resurrection. You need water to clean you. You need life to bring back your dead soul. So here here it is. What the Bible comes to us and says, what it tells us is that we are broken. We are deeply flawed at the very core of our being. Who we are is broken people, period. No qualification. It's a fact. In other words, you don't have problem with sins. You are a sinner. And you're not a sinner because you commit sins. You're a sinner because you're sinful. You don't just fall from time to time. You're fallen. You don't just do evil. You are evil. You don't just have problems. You are the problem. G.K. Chesterton Bigwig genius uh, in the early 1900s. He was a respected writer and artist and uh, political and Christian thinker. And there was this big magazine that solicited him to write an article. And they said, we want you to write an article called What's Wrong with the World? So G.K. Chesterton picked up his pen and he wrote a letter back. And this is all it said. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly. G.K. Chesterton. That was his article. Chesterton understood what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are by nature children of wrath, that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, that no amount of external conforming or reformation will ever change that. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Completely lost. Why? Jesus is telling him he needed to be washed and renewed even though he looked good to everyone else. Nicodemus is blinded by his goodness. He doesn't see his need for transformation. He doesn't see his own brokenness. And that is offensive to good people. Just admit you're offended by that. And John, I think, he's expounding on this idea. If you look over at verses 19 and 20, that the light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness more because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest he should be exposed. We don't want to get near the light because we don't want to be exposed. The best picture of this for me is my oldest son, Thomas. He is the worst liar ever, okay? Um, 
From, ever, from, from the time he has known the difference between uh, a lie and the truth, this has been the case. If something is amiss or broken or you know something wrong has happened, all you have to do is look at him sternly and say his name. And immediately, it's like it's just, he just gets rigid, chin down, and starts con- his face starts contorting. It's like he's chewing on his tongue. And it's like he's doing everything he can to cover up whatever has happened. And he think, it's like his body thinks that by whatever he's doing, it's covering it up. But all it's doing is making it more obvious. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, you and I with each other have just been putting on one long fashion show after another of fig leaves. Our encounters with each other every day are just one attempt after another to cover up who we really are. Because if you're honest with yourself, you know that the greatest fear that you have is that people know who you really are. We don't want to come to the light. Another nod here to Brian Sorgenfry, RUF minister at Mississippi State. He drew it out like this. Some of us... We like to cover it up with our coolness, right? Nothing affects us. Everything's cool. Nothing can rattle us. God forbid anything or anyone affect how we are acting. We look so good. We're managing life so well. We're managing school's demands, social demands. We're going along and we're just thinking that we're hiding our brokenness so well. But Jesus comes along and says, you are going to be exposed, can't cover it up. Some of you are, you, you cover yourself with happiness. You are freaking happy all the time. Stop it. You're happy no matter what. You're always happy with people. You're always there for people. People love being around you because you bring sunny days and rainbows whenever you're around. People lean on you for everything and you eat it up because you think you're covering up what's really going on. And Jesus says, that is going to be exposed. Others of you are just extremely busy. Extremely busy. This is so easy to be in college, I know. You're always checking off the list. You're always adding to the checklist. You cannot go one hour without doing nothing or with, without doing something because that would leave you too much time to reflect on yourself. And you feel good because you're always accomplishing, but all you're doing is running away from the light. Flannery O'Connor, brilliant short story writer, she said that the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Think about that. The best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. She meant that you avoid being exposed by being so good, so liked, so well-rounded, so grounded, right? that you don't need a dying, suffering Jesus. You need a life coach, a pepper-upper, a shot of coffee in the morning, whatever. You gotta see what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that the only thing that Jesus requires of you and the only thing that you can bring to him is nothing. And for some reason, there's something going on in here that makes nothing the hardest thing to give. We don't like it. The last thing is this. You need a savior. You need a savior. If we are as bad as the Bible tells us, if you are as bad as I'm telling you, um, 
what do we do? The gospel tells us nothing. Okay, well, if there's nothing that we can do, then what, do we despair? Is there no hope? Well, I think Jesus gives this beautiful answer. It's weird, but beautiful in verses 14 and 15. Look at this, verse 14 and 15. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a ridiculous old Bible story from Numbers 21, okay? The people grumble. For the umpteenth time, the people of Israel are grumbling against God. And so God says, okay, fine. And he he sends snakes into the camp. Okay, so there's snakes all over the camp of Israel. They're biting everyone. People are dying right and left. Can y'all, I mean, this is terrifying to me. Okay, it's like my worst dream, my worst nightmare ever. Um, So Moses goes in and he prays to God and he repents on behalf of the people. And so God says, okay, take a bronze serpent, put it, so make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, hang it up in the midst of the camp and whoever looks on the serpent will be healed. It is the weirdest story ever. Jesus gives us some insight here. The Israelites in that camp that day, lying on the ground with snake wounds in their body, poison coursing through their veins, had to look up at a shiny version of the very thing that was killing them in order to be saved. And Jesus says, just like that, I've got to be hung up. Jesus is telling us that we all have something that is killing us. And until we see that what is killing us was put on him, until we see that, we will never be healed. Until you see that the things in your life that feel like they are ripping you apart at the seams, those very things were put on Jesus. Until you see that, you will never be made right. So, I hope you're seeing now. This is where we see that when we come to, the, come to Jesus and are exposed, when we do admit our utter need of Jesus, that we see that we need Jesus just to be able to believe in him. I need Jesus to be able to actually believe in Jesus. When we see those things, when we let ourselves be exposed, then we actually see that this God took our sin and hung it on a cross. He really did that. You need to see that. You need to believe that. Then you need to personalize that. For so many of us, this is so mundane, so familiar, because the fact that sin was hung on a cross is just an abstract idea. You need to personalize that. How do you do that? What do you call yourself when you feel the worst about yourself? What are the words that come to mind when you feel the guiltiest? Maybe words like failure, ugly, dirty, rejected. What Jesus is saying here is that you will never understand the radical nature of being born again until you see Jesus who knew what was in you when he came. Until you see him being your failure. 
being your ugliness, being the thing that makes you feel dirty. He became that for you, for you. We need to hear John 3.16 afresh. We need to look at it. We need to take it in and realize that it's beautiful. Believers and non-believers alike. First, non-believers, maybe you aren't born again. Maybe you don't know if you have been. When you look at John 3.16, you see that what was given for you was so you might not perish. You look at verse 18. The warning in verse 18 is really real. The bad news is real. The condemnation that hangs over your head is real. It is for all of us. And the question is, are you going to see it? Are you going to keep turning around? Because the thing is, is in the end, you're going to get what you really wanted, and that's full separation. For believers, we need to hear John 3.16 afresh. You have believed. You are trusting. You are a child of God. But you just cannot shake the sense that your every day is just putting up this mask of someone you really aren't and you're exhausted. It's because you think Jesus is tolerating you. And you think that the next time you mess up again, he really is going to be done with you. But I want you to look, look at John 3.16. Look at what it is telling you. What John 3.16 is telling you is that his love could not be any greater than it already is. So how could it be any less? It is... God's love for you could not be greater than it already is. So how in the world could it be any less? He really, you look at John 3.16 and you really see, he really does love you. He really does put his favor on you. You really can trust him with your life. I'm close with this. I don't know how many of y'all saw the movie, uh, 127 Hours about a guy named Aaron Ralston. Uh, he wrote a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. And it was about, um, it was a memoir. I can't say that word. Um, it was about, he went out hiking one day out in the wilderness. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Um, and he slipped uh, uh, and he fell with a boulder down into a crevice. And by the time he realized what had happened, he realized that his arm was stuck in between the boulder and the rock wall. And he could not do anything to budget or get out. And he spent a few days in there before he finally came to the conclusion that either he was going to die or he was going to have to cut his arm off to get out. And in his book, in the movie, I mean, it makes my arm hurt just thinking about it. It's awful. But in the book, he reflects on the moment when he cuts his own arm off. And this is what he says. He says, it was the most painful thing I had ever felt. But in the same moment, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever experienced because I was free. 
See, the thing about the gospel is this, y'all. It pierces you to the core. You think about it, you're so wretched that the only thing that could save you was that the son of God himself had to die. That should pierce you to the core. It is a terrifying, gut-riching thing to see yourself as you really are. Because when through the gospel you are convinced of your sin, you see just how far, just how out of reach God is. But at the same time, the gospel comes at the same moment and says, you are never out of the reach of his. You can stop hiding. You can stop running away from the light. You can stop pretending. Do you need to hear that tonight? You can unashamedly step into the light and not fear what is going to be exposed. You can actually begin to deal with the things that are exposed. You know why? Because they were put to death. The question is, have you been born again? And we put a lot of emphasis on that question as some moment in the past. But if you really want to answer the question, have you been born again? Ask yourselves right now, are you alive? Are you alive? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, through the washing of the water and your word, that we would be born again to a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, waiting in heaven for us. Father, we need to see Jesus. And as you tell us here, you loved us so much that you gave him to us. We want to be amazed by that tonight. We pray that by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name, amen.